everyone, and welcome to issue number four of Hey, That's Comics. I'm your host, Gary Webb. Before I jump into this week's episode, I want to take a moment here at the top of the show to say thank you to two guys I think most of you out there know, Mark Turcott and Chris Maselli. They uh, shined a light on me on what I'm doing here. As I mentioned before, it was these two guys who suggested I do this in the first place, and I, and I really appreciate the support. And I also want to thank you guys out there for tuning in after they recommended it. I mean, I've seen the numbers. Many of you did check it out, for which I'm exceedingly grateful. I'm having a blast doing this, and I hope you continue to join me. This week, we're going to change things up a bit, as Marcus Ellinger is going to join me again for this week's news section. Now, in preparation, I realized that, you know, my little soapbox wasn't big enough for the both of us on there, and it's not entirely fair that Slade takes all the credit for what we discuss, so we're going to do what we what we usually do, but between the panels, where we're going to talk about Jacqueline Phoenix's Joker movie getting an R rating, which, I mean, that doesn't surprise us much, but, you know, also what we're expecting from it, along with Marvel Studios' announcements from the D23 event, and then, of course, the real reason Marcus is joining me this week, the news about the split between between Marvel and Sony. Then I'm going to take back over the show solo and check in on Marvel's Absolute Carnage versus Deadpool number one, Xenoscope's Entertainment's Van Helsing versus Dracula's Daughter, and we're going to follow that up with DC's Black Mask, Year of the Villain number one, before, of course, we make our weekly stop with those mutants and with Powers of Ten number three in the weekly poll. Then it's on to the main event with part one of our Age of Apocalypse reread in the comic club. I mentioned to dive in, but remember, I want to hear from you about anything we discuss or what you think we should be talking about. Hit me up at Hey That's Comics on Instagram or Twitter, or you can email me at Hey That's Comics at Outlook.com, all of which you can find in the show notes where you can use the link there and send me an audio message to play on air and then, you know, incorporating it into the show. Thanks for coming in to get down and nerdy with me. And with that, let's kick things off by taking a look between the panels. Between the panels. And here we are now for the debut edition of Between the Panels. And now, as I mentioned a few moments ago, joining me at this time is Nerd Buzz's own Marcus Ellinger. Marcus, what's, what's going on? I'm uh, I'm presently ready to get nerdy with you, but I'm in the process of getting buzzed. I'm trying to live up to my name. It's my first well, I, beer of the day. I actually saved it just for you and the show, Gary. Oh, that's touching, man. It's like <laughs> a Hallmark card. I saved the first beer of the day to drink with you. Yeah, yeah, right. Not to share with you, but to drink while I talk to you. <laughs> it doesn't have anything to do with me needing a beer to, to be able to talk to you. You know, don't interpret that the wrong way. You want to be the, the first one. <laughs> but, all right, Marcus. Well, I'm glad to have you back here. So... Earlier this week, they announced that Jacqueline Phoenix's Joker movie, which we knew was getting ready to come out, I think it's in October, it finally got officially rated, which rated R, which I, we kind of expected with Jacqueline Phoenix and Todd Miller doing it. But what are your thoughts about this going in? Have you seen the trailers? I know you're I, big on Batman. How are you feeling about this movie? I'm really excited for it. Uh, I think everything that I've seen so far from it has me really intrigued. Like, I think even if it doesn't totally meet my, uh, my like Joker expectations, like I'm trying to be a little reserved with that as far as that going in, 
I'm still really curious about what this movie is actually going to be. Like, I like the real artsy approach that they're taking to it. Um, I've heard that that it's going to have some like uh, some music kind of driving it too, which I'm really into in movies. So I'm apprehensive about it as far as representing the Joker that I would love to see in a movie, like the ideal comic book version, which I think they've kind of been upfront about anyway, that it's not going to be that. But I'm really intrigued to see this kind of branched out, kind of artsy version of the Joker. And I don't, and I'm not, a, I'm not opposed to like to Walking Phoenix. So I'm into it. You basically took all the words right out of my mouth. I mean, <laughs> I think you're definitely going to get the great character work from Phoenix. And, but I mean, I also think you've got a very good point. While I think there's a very good chance we're going to get a great movie that happens to feature the Joker, I don't think that we're necessarily going to get a great Joker movie. Yeah, I, I think it's foolish to go into it with that. And I think they've been, I mean, they haven't just, they've they've done everything but come directly out and say that, right? So in in several roundabout ways, they've already kind of said that. So, which I can appreciate because I'm not going into it assuming that it is going to be this super ideal dream Joker comic book version of the movie. But I mean, again, I'm not, I'm really not opposed to like uh, outside of the like, uh, regular continuity of the comics, like a uh, trade paperback, maybe like a little 12 issue thing that comes out. That's like this alternate, somebody else's interpretation of something like the dark Knight returns kind of thing. Right. Like I'm, I'm totally on board with something like that too. As you were talking about that, I instantly thought white Knight, but um... yeah, yeah, totally. Have they, I guess the only, the only other real person that they've announced is um, the guy that was in the, the comedian movie originally. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a little apprehensive, obviously, but I mean, at the same time, I'm excited. I'm excited to see. I like these different interpretations of superhero stuff and kind of thinking outside the box and not just kind of regurgitating the same thing we've seen. Right. So I'm, for that part of it, I'm really excited. Yeah. And I mean, I like how kind of leveraging into I mean, they're obviously not doing the killing joke, but they're kind of basing this all off of the one bad day thing that's been a constant theme where he's living his life and then all of a sudden his life hits rock bottom and that's what's going to give us the Joker. I mean, there's an awful lot of story there you could tell. Well, and, and really, I mean, isn't this to be like, to be fair to them, there hasn't really been this like definitive origin story of the Joker, right? Like it's always, it's always had this like air of mystery around it. Oh, yeah. His, his origin is multiple choice, and that's how he likes it. Yeah. I mean, we get, we get some nods to it in The Killing Joke, and we get, you know, Heath Ledger's multiple versions of it. But no, there's never been a definitive origin. So that it's interesting that they're doing that. Like, I always thought of, like, the original Tim Burton Batman. I, I think of that uh, as as basically a Joker movie, right? Oh, yeah. It's definitely more of a focus on Michael Keaton. But, I mean, really, that's true of a lot of them. Yeah, like, I guess Batman has to be there, but it's like the villain is kind of the driving force for Batman, I guess. But the Joker is like the ultimate one, right? Oh, yeah. He is the epitome. He's the guy who can go anywhere and do anything. You never know what's to come. The The crown prince of crime. Um. So I looked it up. Uh, the other guy is Robert De Niro. I always oh, want to yeah. see, right? I, for some reason, I always think of him as Tommy Lee Jones, and I don't know why, but I always mix those two up. <laughs> Well, I mean, they're both dudes, and they've both been in movies, so... Yeah, and they're both you know. kind of older. They have that kind of scowly, old guy look, right? They both look kind of grumpy a lot. I'll allow it. I'll allow it. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess my real question with what they're doing here is, given that they've been kind of an upswing with 
Aquaman and then Shazam and even Wonder Woman before it. Now they're diverging away with a Joker movie. I mean, do you think it's going to confuse people as to what the brand's going to be? No, because I think this is totally independent. I, I, I don't think I think this is going to stand outside of everything and just kind of be its own independent thing. Has there been any mention? Have you heard any mention of there like being a trilogy or like that seems to be the classic yeah. thing? No, at this point, as far as I know, this is just a single standalone movie. Yeah, and that's all I've heard about it, too, which, again, I'm a huge fan of that, right? That's also... I love how much this movie makes me excited for something like, um, you know, like The White Knight or like The Batman Returns, where it's like you have this definitive number. It's a departure from from what you're usually uh, used to to that character as it's this other interpretation and it hopefully it'll be fresh. You take it for what it is and then you don't worry about its continuity continuity with everything else. Oh yeah. Elseworlds, alternate timelines, like age of apocalypse that I do in this week's comic club. That's the key example, but let, letting yeah. people go free, do whatever they want without being hampered by continuity. I mean, you get yeah. some really good stuff, but so overall you're feeling excited about Joker. I'm really excited to go see it. I'm going to go see that as soon as it comes out for sure. Oh, like a day one? I uh, Weekend one, I'll say that. I mean, I want to see it. I don't think I'm going to be able to swing that. It's hard enough swinging Avengers. Nice. Well, I will make sure to see it and then get a hold of you and spoil everything. Uh, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> so last time you were on here, we spent, what, like 20, 25 minutes just talking about everything that came out of Comic-Con. Everything yep. that was coming to the Disney Plus service and the movies and everything. Then we hit the D23 just the other day, and we get more announcements, Marcus. Yes. like It's like as many announcements, and they're all still as substantial as what we heard, basically, right? Yes. I mean, essentially, one of the announcements actually was something we didn't get to when we, talk, when we talked. I mean, we probably just lost track of it. But they, uh, what if animated series wasn't super big on was how they're basically planning on there's like going to be 23 episodes and each one's going to be a what if based off of each movie in the marvel timeline yeah i really like that idea i am a super big fan of that idea i it makes me wonder how much it's i mean it's going to be like a kind of like this uh mcu twilight zone right or like tales from the crypt kind of thing right yeah i kept thinking that the more i hear about it but i i love that there's going to be one for each movie i think that's awesome again it's that pulling us in to these first three phases and, and tying into that continuity again and making it all relevant, finding all little Easter eggs and things in there. It, it's super cool. I'm w- totally on board. And the fact that they're bringing in that movie cast to come in and voice their roles, at least for the majority of big ones. I mean, that's, that's something you just don't see. It's always, it's always voice sound alikes. Yes. I mean, we're going to get uh, Haley Atwell as, yeah, as Captain America when she in the first episode and Chris yeah. Evans probably going to be there to play scrawny Steve still. I mean, you just don't get a list celebrities like that in a cartoon. No, not at all. It, it also makes me think of like, like how many other things does Disney have just like waiting in the wings that they've already got planned to like come out like this. There's no way that this was a new concept, right? This is something that they've been planning and totally had it all set in motion forever ago i bet i'm assuming that they would this has been a long time for disney well and then what was it last week or the week before i talked about it in the soapbox uh jeff Loeb, the head of marvel television he's got a whole slate of stuff they're just waiting to announce it yeah 
I mean, this is all just Marvel Studios. There's a whole yeah. another division that you know was behind all the Netflix or all the Netflix stuff, Agents of Shield, Runaways, Legion, all of that. That was them, and they've got a whole bunch in the pipeline going to be on there too. Yeah, well, and this is definitely them pulling it all together under one roof, right? Like that's pretty obvious that 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 that's that that's what's really going on here with everything is they're really trying to, you know, take control of all, of all these different properties and, and be able to like funnel them through the same, same source, which is going to be your Disney plus. It just is. How many shows can we watch? How much time do we actually have in the day to consume this? <laughs> uh, I think a lot. So I've been trying to, uh, you know, because I like to drink beer and be nerdy, I've been trying to yeah. do some of that while I'm like working out. So I've been now watching an episode of like the CW, uh, I mean, not the CW, the DC uh, streaming service, right? To catch up on all that stuff. So I've been yeah. doing that yeah. while I work out. And now uh, I've gotten so terrible that I'll even watch my phone like while I take a shower. What are you watching currently? I've been watching animated stuff um, yeah. on, the, on the DC. Uh, and I think I was telling you, like, it's weird how much cursing can go on in the animated stuff. I was a little bit shocked by that. But the uh, the next on my list is the Doom Patrol, for sure. Oh, you haven't watched Doom Patrol? I haven't started yet. Yeah, I haven't started yet. Because there's too much to watch, Gary, just like you said, right? Uh, what was I just saw today? Up until up to everything's happened right now, the Arrowverse has 20 seasons of content. Damn. That's ridiculous. I can't imagine trying to dump a jump in now. And with uh-huh. and God, Marvel's going to be worse. Oh, yeah. Like, it's going to be tough to keep up. It, it's going to be interesting to see how quickly they like how they pace it. Right. Like, how how quickly are we going to get these? Because well, it, I think like announced between now and 2022. Yeah, that's three years. Well, two, really. We're almost done with 2019. Yeah. And everything they've announced, that's a lot for two years. Right. And that's not counting all the stuff in Star Wars. Obi-Wan's coming back. Yeah. I'm curious about that, too. I'd like to see him uh, get a second chance, right? Like those, everybody rags on those movies and they're not anybody's favorite, but I don't think it's any fault of, uh, of like Ewan McGregor or anything. Like I'd like to see him get another chance to, to, and for Disney to get another chance to do that. Right. I mean, I thought Ewan McGregor was a phenomenal Obi-Wan. It's not his fault what the movie around him was. Yeah, no, totally. So I'm, well now, um, I get, were those first three even involved? Were they still part of the Disney or had Disney actually bought it yet? Oh, no, dude. They bought them after Marvel. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. So this is actually going to be their first stab at that character. Right. So I'm intrigued by that, too. And I like the fact that they're doing a series because that just gives you more time to develop it rather than a two hour movie. You know, we get a nine hour. Yeah, for sure. And that's the again, I think it has to be done right, because I think the Netflix shows were a good example of like how you can utilize all those episodes and you can really keep you engaged and, and make it really awesome. But then they, then they also went the route of some of those seasons could have dropped like three episodes and it would have been just fine. And you probably would have lost a lot of that filler. Right. So it's like, it's a tough balance, I think, to do the superhero series and, and, and just keep everything, uh, you know, nice and even throughout it and but still keep you engaged and, it, I'm curious to see how Disney's going to handle it. We haven't really seen them do that yet, so I'm, I'm pretty intrigued. 
What did the Netflix series average? Like twelve episodes? Uh, yeah, I think so. Right about twelve. Okay, because I mean, I think most of what I've seen from at least the Marvel series, it's been like six, eight. I'm like, yeah. that's the. Sweet yeah, yeah, I think so too. And I think even as the Netflix went on, um, I'm pretty sure that by the end they started getting shorter. Like they started to kind of realize that too. I think people were also losing interest, and maybe it wasn't worth the money to invest in them. But they were getting shorter, and I. I did appreciate that about it, but I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm really curious to see how Disney, now that they have full control over all that, how, how they're going to handle it. I'm sure they're going to do great. I mean, as much as I love the Arrowverse shows, each one of those is 22 episodes. Yeah. And that's not counting the 20 seasons. I mean, dude, it's absolutely ludicrous. And even the really great seasons, like season two with that, with that stroke. I mean, as great as some of the highs were, the lows were definitely way down there, too. You can't do it that well over 22 episodes. Well, and it also depends on how how you, like, absorb that, right? Like, have we, have we found out how the uh, Disney shows are actually going to be released? Are we going to get them in one big block? You just get the season? Or do you get, like, an episode every week? I don't believe we know that yet. So I think that's going to be a big part of it, too, because I I think when you have to wait a whole week and then you get that episode where nothing really happens and but it like left off on a climax the week before. And so you get you get a Bulma episode. That's what I like to call yeah. those. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you get one of those in there and it's like, I mean, you got to wait a whole other week now for anything to happen. That's a long time. Two weeks. We're not even as just like a society now, we're not used to having to wait that amount of time. So I'm I'm curious to see what's going to happen there with all these shows with Disney, too. Are they just going to give them all at once? I don't know. Like, can they sell us on the service if we only get like one episode of the of the Mandalorian and one episode of the like what if or like we just get one episode of each one and we get another one every week or or do they have to just dump them all on us? I mean, I, like you said, it's going to depend, I think, on the cadence of releases. I mean, it seems like they've got a lot of stuff coming up. Yeah. So I mean, it. I mean, it depends. They're yeah, they're going probably going to drop like one Marvel series at a time, but. What are they doing in Star Wars at that time or on National Geographic or, you know, what have you? I mean, that's really going to dictate it because the goal is they've got to make it consistently good enough so you don't pull like an HBO Go and you just pay for it for a month, watch all of Game of Thrones, and then you're done again until next year. Yeah, totally. And that which is how uh, me and my wife treat HBO for sure. Oh, yeah. yeah, we wait till there's like two episodes left pay you know pay for that last month just like you're saying and then binge it and bow, and then bail out yes because i mean other than that you don't need it yeah so it'll be interesting to see how they approach that so out of the other three things that they announced uh miss marvel she hulk and moon knight do you have any particular feelings about any of them okay so when i was first reading these i thought there's no way these are live action right like these have to be an animated series how can they make all these live action shows but then i think I everything I've read, they seem like live action stuff, right? Yes. So that's insane to me. The She-Hulk one, I think, is interesting because last time I was on your show, we both said we were glad that there wasn't going to be a Hulk show. Right. And then now at their next uh, big convention thing here, they announced a Hulk show. So I'm curious to see how that's going to go down. And I'm, well, if I remember a different scenario. Hulk, it's almost always going to eventually get back to, oh, I've got to stop the monster within. She yeah. Hulk, for the most part, is in control. She's well, a lawyer, boss. She's like Daredevil as a Hulk. 
she's a lawyer trying to bust crimes, help people, stuff like that. And then She-Hulk is her delivery methods. Well, and isn't she, for the most part, She-Hulk most of the time? Yes. Yeah, so, like, is it going to be all CGI then? I mean, they can't go back to, like, the old school green paint, can they? No. Well, obviously, right? But, I mean, is she going to actually... Like, will, what will the ratio be? Is it going to be the green She-Hulk for, like, 60% of the show? Or are they going to find a way to, like, do what Netflix did or, like, what the CW does where they, like, they give them a bunch of screen time where they're not the in their hero form, right? Like, I don't... I'm curious to... I'm curious about that one. Because we were both really apprehensive about a Hulk show, and now we're going to get one. And I agree that it's very different, but Hulk's a tricky one, right? Because if the budget's not there and they're doing it CG, then Hulk's not going to look right. It's going to look like the first Hulk movie, not yeah. Even that one I'm I'm the most kind of I'm intrigued by it, but I'm pretty apprehensive. Uh, the Moon Knight one I'm really curious about because I keep hearing that there's going to be like this, uh, like him trying to determine if he's crazy, right? Yes. And so so I like the idea of it being this like psychological kind of like thriller intense show. And I would like for, for Disney to have that element with one of their characters. So if we get that with Moon Knight, I'm pretty stoked for that. That could be really cool. Moon Knight, Mark Spector. He's kind of like Legion in that he's got different personalities inside of him. There's not really any powers involved outside of he at one point gains some mild abilities from like the moon god. I, as I'm not, it's the wrong term. It's like the Egyptian god of the moon. Yeah. And that's why became moon knight and yeah he's got different personalities and then depending on which personalities ascended at the time that's how he does stuff and i and they do have several stories i want to say it was jeff lemire chris would know but i can't i don't remember off the top of my head but where he ends up like going in and one of his personalities is going through assassinating all the other ones trying to be the last one left and i just think there's a lot of really cool ways they can play with it but my concern is it's the disney plus so they're going to have limits. Yeah, but even if I think that that to make a show um, like impactful and like emotionally and and like it, and stirring up things inside you, like sometimes it's easier to do that by letting you do that yourself. Right. To just like hint yeah. at it happening. Yeah. So if they can do that in a way to where it has all this really intense uh, you know, kind of creepy stuff that's going on, but they don't have to show it all to make it super graphic. I'm also totally cool with that. So I, and I think they have the creative team there to pull it off. So I'm, I, that's the one I'm the most excited for. It's I'm more excited for that than anything else I've, that, that they've announced actually. Oh, really? I think so. I think that's the one that's like, I have there's other ones I'm really curious about. I'm I'm excited for them all to just be like yeah. honest, but that one is like immediately jumped to the top of the list because it sounds so different, right? So I'm curious to see how they're gonna how they're gonna pull that off. And I want it to be different. I don't want all these shows like the Arrowverse and the CW, it's cool for what it is, but all those shows feel kind of the same, right? Like you you feel which and it's awesome when they cross over because it makes that crossover transition easier and it is all awesome in its own way. But I don't want the Disney Plus shows to all feel the same. Like I like that each one is e- even though we haven't seen them yet, they're all being sold in these totally different ways and that's one of the most appealing parts to me. I do have one question for you about the whole about introducing all these characters, right? 
Yes. How do you feel? Because the one thing we always wanted with Netflix was when are these characters going to be in a movie? And I remember like on Nerd Buzz, we used to always talk about you don't even have to have Daredevil in the movie, but have like a trial going on in the background that's like really a meaningless plot, but it's just acknowledged in the movie and you like see him in a courtroom on TV, like in the background somewhere. Yeah, or like a newspaper headline where it says Daredevil or something. Something like Matt Murdock and like have that guy's face. Like it doesn't even have to be anything to do with the movie, but just a little Easter Easter egg, right? Like a little Stan Lee moment kind of. And we never got anything like that. We got a little bits in the Netflix shows to the uh, the event. Yeah. How they refer to it as the event. Yeah. But I think this is a this is like the prime opportunity for Disney to create those moments and then be able to introduce them into movies, right? That's exactly why they're doing this. That's what makes this Disney Plus stuff so good. This is exact. This is Mark Marvel Studios itself. So, like yeah. Miss Marvel, who's getting that series, they've already said she's then going to transition into the cinematic universe. Yeah, Falcon and Bucky, you know they're going to pop back up again. Yep, totally. Well, and like I think we said before, um, which I liked your idea of that it will be him dealing with becoming Captain America before he decide, like actually, you know, takes over the role. And then maybe that'll be them when they're introduced in a movie again. So I love, I love the, those transitions. I mean, we saw Endgame. you saw him get the shield. So you can probably just watch the movie and accept that he now is Captain America or stepping up to the mantle. But if you want that backstory in the transition, you can now watch the, the series to get there. That is super cool. And with, I mean, come on, with the price point and everything, why would you not be able to watch it anyway? Disney Plus seems like the biggest no-brainer I think I've ever seen for a streaming service. Oh, well, I already pay for Hulu, right? Like, I already pay, what is it, eight bucks a month for Hulu. This is only a few dollars more. Yes. So it's a no-brainer for me, for sure. Okay. So as awesome as everything coming to Disney Plus is, there was some bad news this week. So this week, Sony and Disney have decided to part ways, at least for now. And that means Spider-Man is on his way out of the MCU. Marcus, you and I talked about this a little bit back and forth. And we have not necessarily opposing opinions. We both agree that each one's right. But we both see it from a slightly different perspective. So I thought we would get your incorrect view out of the way first. (laughs) You go ahead. Yeah, right. Like, if you don't have a big enough reason to hate me you can add this to the list, but I, I, I do want to be upfront and just say it's unfortunate. Like the whole thing is unfortunate. It would have been awesome to at least get to see them do this next movie and, and have, a, have that continuity again, which I've already talked about okay. a bunch of times, right? Like I'm a big fan of that. So it is a bummer. Like I'm on that boat too, but I am not on board with this. It's all Sony's fault mentality because i really don't think it is sony's fault and i don't think i don't disagree with that i don't think this is sony's fault at all i think if anything we should say we really we should say thank you to sony because i can't think of any time that any sort of deal has ever been struck like what was done with spider-man ever before it was so cool that we got him in the mcu that it was that it was treated the way it was it's phenomenal right it's like groundbreaking it's like history in the making that this ever even happened and we always were aware that that he wouldn't be around forever and i can't there's a part of me 
that I can't help but think if Disney was really doing it all for the fans and the fans came first and and that's what really mattered and we wanted to make the movie for them that they would have bit their tongues and just made this next movie and then dealt with all this stuff, right? Like give that movie to the fans, complete your your Spider-Man solo trilogy movies so that you can at least end it there if you need to. But the way it ended, man, is brutal for us. And it's unfortunate that the way Disney sold it was that Disney doesn't want to work with us anymore, so blame them. Is kind of what Sony said, right? But Marvel is... I mean, I can't help but think Marvel is starting to get a pretty... Or Disney uh, with the MCU and Feige even in there, which I give so much credit to. But he, I can't help but feel like there's starting to be a lot of big egos over at Disney. And... I would be totally okay with them calming that down, right? Like we don't need a double release of every single movie just so you can break records. I I don't want you to lose a character that we have because you want your name in the credits for something. It's like, how much more credit do you really need? Right. And I don't think that we should encourage people to boycott Sony movie, the Sony version of it. That seems so counterproductive to me. Uh, I think anybody that does that is so foolish and it seems so hypocritical because that's what happened. Like I liked solo, like maybe people hate me more for saying that, but I actually liked the Han Solo movie and people were all butthurt about the star Wars movie before it. So they were all on board to boycott solo and now we don't get any solo movies. Right. So it's like, yeah, it was like justice league. BVS was so bad. And don't get me wrong. Justice league was extremely uneven. Yeah. But no, it wasn't as bad as it was made out to be. Yeah, it's. I think if you boycott going to see this next Spider-Man movie, it's really unfortunate that that's how you're going to deal with this. And and again, I mean, we're already. How excited are we for all these varieties of Marvel shows, like we just said, or this Joaquin Phoenix uh, Joker movie? And it's like, it's okay if it's different. Like, I I think people need to learn to get over that. But don't. I don't think there should be any real side picking in this between Marvel and Disney or and Sony personally. Like I really don't want to grudge there because that's going to spill into other things that I care about. And I don't think the fans should jump on that bandwagon either. Just go see the movie, man. If you're a fan of Spider-Man, give it a chance. Right. It's, I don't know. It's weird. I'm, and I specifically said, as we were talking about this same basic topic that Sony was Seriously, could probably going to think about pulling Spider-Man back. Yeah. And, I mean, I hate to be right, but, I mean, I kind of saw this coming. <laughs> you are. We do I, call you the Oracle I, for a reason. I don't actually disagree with anything that you say. Everything you say is right. Sony was perfectly within its right to say, nope, we want Spider-Man to use the way we want over here in our universe. My yeah. issue is, my concern is this. Sony, in the long run, is screwing over everybody, including themselves. They stand to lose a ton of money. Like, I think that's, I mean, they just do, right? If I, if I thought that this decision was based more on, more on the fact that they were in a good place rather than, the, you know, they had Into the Spider-Verse, which I think was more down to Lord and Millard's writing and directing rather than, you know, what Sony did. And then, you know, the fluke went of Venom. I think that's why they decided... We don't need the MCU anymore. We can do this ourselves now. But see, now I think you're putting the blame on Sony. Like, I think you're making it sound like Sony came to the table and made demands. And from everything no. I've read, that's not no. the way it happened. It was Marvel no. and Disney came to the table and made no. demands. 
right? What I'm trying to stress is I don't think if Venom had been a surprise hit, I don't think we're having this conversation right now. I think if Marvel wouldn't have made demands, which is I don't understand why they did that now, right? It is such a disservice to the people that have been so loyal to all these movies thus far, right? Okay. I think their demands were excessive, but Marvel came in and basically did all of the heavy lifting for Sony. Yeah. To- for the Mar- Spider-Man here. I could see them wanting more than the 5% they were getting. 50% yeah. was absolutely ridiculous. Disney is totally in love with itself. I agree with you entirely. I, But I yeah. could see them, you know, maybe at 20% at least. You know, some sort of a bump because they were doing the majority of the work. It's not I, agree. I agree. I agree it should have been renegotiated, right? But I think it's terrible timing to do this renegotiation. It's, we're just on the heels of Far From Home, which Are I was we, such I'm, a big fan of. Are we positive that this was an unscheduled renegotiation? We've always assumed that there was a, it was guaranteed that the next movie was going to happen. Maybe it yeah. was ended they would come back together to decide this. Yeah, like maybe if, if it made a billion dollars, that actually just meant they would sit down and discuss it again. Yes, I mean, we don't, right? I mean, we don't actually know the, what's on the contract. That's just what we heard. So that's what we run with because it's been, you know, in enough reputable places that I figured it was fairly likely. I'm not like super shocked. I am so shocked that the deal ever even happened, right? Like that still shocks me. And I'm so appreciative of what we did get from the spider. I think it's the best cinematic Spider-Man we've ever gotten, right? And that would have never happened if it wasn't for the deal. that was. So, I, I mean, that's awesome. I'm so on board with that. And it's so cool. I think it's horrible timing to renegotiate. And again, maybe that is just contractually the way it needed to happen anyway. Um, if anything, what I take away from this is that it's unfortunate that dollars would get in the way of, the of, of yeah, right. Of, of the sets. Yeah. Of, well, and, and, and of serving the fans, right? Like Endgame, Marvel has done such a good example of catering to their fans and, and making sure that their fans are satisfied in a lot of ways with with the way Disney has treated the MCU. I, I do think that there's been progressive signs that their, their egos are getting kind of bloated, right? Like with the, I think one of the big ones was the uh, Black Panther, like them self-promoting it for awards and pushing it for all this stuff. Like that's a little bit weird. And, you know, whatever your opinions are on Black Panther, that's up to you. But it's, it's weird when you do that for yourself. Um, it's, it's weird when they re-released Endgame, right? It's like re-released it just to break the record, which I get it. Like you want to own the title, but still that's a little bit weird. Uh, It's weirder that they're doing it with Spider-Man. I agree that that's really weird. And initially I had thought maybe we're going to. Yeah. Right. And it's like, I I don't know. It's like, it's starting to sound like there's some pretty puffed up ego stuff going on that I unfortunately taints it a little bit for me. Right. I, I don't know. I just, it's unfortunate. The whole thing is really That's kind cool. of disappointing, right? Like what's going to happen in the next Spider-Man movie and what's going to happen in the rest of the MCU? Are they just not going to be, be able to acknowledge him? Will they be allowed to acknowledge the stuff that already has happened in the MCU with him? Or is it like, I don't know. It's going to be this weird gray area. 
Do you think that there's any chance we get a 24th episode of What If, and they show what if Spider-Man had stayed in the MCU? Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) And all it is is just 20 minutes of fans applauding (laughs) with dollar signs, right? That's the scariest thing to me, really, in this whole thing, is that all of this emphasizes how important money is, right, to them, to everybody that's involved in all this stuff, which I think we are foolish to assume that it ever wasn't about that, but it it's, it's just really unfortunate as a fan of, of all of it, that that's what got in the way to, to at least round out what you'd already given us. Cause I was so stoked, man. When you Where's saw it? Jay, Jay Jonah, when you got that reveal at the end, it was like, we're getting another one and there's some crazy stuff going on. Like I can't wait. And then now we'll just never know. They handed the torch from Tony to Peter. I mean, it, actually, it's kind of sad. This means Tony's tar- Tony sacrificed himself to save the kid, and they lost him anyway. Yeah, right? It's like, there's so... I, I think no matter what happens, because I do think it's going to all get crazy. I, I don't think this is the last crazy thing we're going to hear from Marvel and what they're trying to do with all this stuff. I think some of it's going to hit, and it's going to hit hard, and we're going to just going to love it, and it'll be the best thing ever. And some of it's going to miss, and it might be some of the worst things we see ever. But no matter what... I am so impressed and excited and stoked to have my 23 Marvel movies where there's continuity and we got all these people and you get to see all these childhood things on the big screen. It's like, it's insane, right? Like no matter what, I think maybe I said this on the other show when we were on there. It's like, you can look back on it all and be satisfied. Like it's going to be hard to taint what we've gotten already. So I'm up for it. I want to see what all this new stuff does and I want to see what they do. I, I really don't want people to boycott the movie. Please don't do that. Like that seems like such a ridiculous thing. What it's if not, it's not the end of the world? No, fine, everybody. Peter's still going to be okay. Holland's apparently still sticking around. He's just, yeah. Aunt May's not going to let him come play out anymore. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah, because she won't be in it. Right. Did they, do they own that? Ever. Yeah. It's like, it's going to be weird. But that doesn't mean that it has to be horrible, right? And even if they miss a little bit on this first Sony movie, if it's not the worst thing we've seen, and maybe it is this new interpretation, like we've already kind of talked about with the Joaquin Phoenix Joker and these other, you know, gambles that Disney is continuing to take, maybe the next one will be good, or maybe it will tie in this other multiverse. And you know what? Competition can totally drive... um, you know, even take you beyond beyond what you thought you could do without somebody else pushing you. So if Sony can start to do that for Marvel, then I'm all for it, really. Do you think, if by chance, that Sony could be convinced to sell the license to Warner Brothers? Spider-Man could show up in a Justice League movie? <laughs> I think... I Okay, I think that could happen <laughs> if people if people boycott the movie... And they and suddenly all this social media and people online encourage this ridiculous rivalry between Marvel and Sony, right? Like if that happens, then yes, maybe that could happen because that would be the perfect thing to do to just spite Marvel, right? That would be the best thing that Sony could do if that's what it was about. But yeah, I don't know. <laughs> That'd be so weird. The only one they get is Spider-Man. That would be hilarious, dude. <laughs> The first time you have Batman meets Spider-Man on big screen. You know that he would become Robin, right? Like, that's what would happen. 
No, Deadpool would try to become Robin. <laughs> okay, now, I mean, we've been fairly negative here, and that's because there's really no good news. But to be fair, there is still a chance that they're going to make work, make a deal work out. This all could end up being just a blip in the road. But at, like I said, at this point, it's not looking good. No, I mean, I, I think for as far as we know right now, you need to really love and enjoy the Spider-Man that you've gotten in the MCU. And, you know, that's what you get. Like, don't look forward to anything in the future because nobody's confirmed anything so far. If anything, they've confirmed that it's not going to happen. So yeah, at this point, we, you don't plan on it. We may get surprised again. We never thought he was going to show up in Civil War. But by God, he did. Yeah. Like, is it worth it for that? I mean, like, how do you feel personally as far as, like, the timing of it? Like, would you have preferred that Marvel just would have, like, shut up and let them make one more movie with that didn't end on such a super cliffhanger? Oh, man, I wish would have been satisfied? I agreed to split off. Let's just finish this one last movie so we can, you know, at least somewhat contain things. And then, you know, you can spend Peter off on his own. Yeah. Well, not on his own, into the Venomverse, which is, I get what we're going to call it for now. But yeah, which is weird. Like it's got to be the Spider Verse at some point, right? But at this point, Venom's already introduced. The symbiote's already introduced. With Spider Man nowhere involved, how are you going to retcon him in there and have the significance that he already had that he or that he's supposed to have? <laughs> uh, can I do the cop out and say soft reboot? Uh, after one movie, <laughs> that's, that's DC thinking right there. <laughs> there, yeah, right now it's DC again. Oh God, Warner is going to get it. You were right. Damn you and your Oracle powers. <laughs> it's going to be so long before we find out what's going to happen here. Before I jump into the weekly poll here, talk about what's going on currently. Is there anything you want to say before you head off here? Um, I guess, uh, like I said, I just, I want to reiterate to people to give Sony a chance, man. I, th I think if anything, they do, they deserve some acknowledgement for letting us get the Spider-Man that we did get. Cause it wouldn't have happened without the deal. So I would like to announce a thank you to Sony. Like if anything, thank you really. Right. And thank you for Marvel for giving us the best Spider-Man we've gotten. I really hope it's not the last of it that we've seen. Um, and I also hope, uh, you know, this isn't the last that you get to hear of me on the, uh, Hey, that's comics. And if you get a bunch of negative comments, Gary, I'm sorry. <laughs> Maybe you'll get it's like I told you. Consider yourself the uh, co-host who just only shows up once in a very great while. <laughs> You're like the Jeremiah. Yeah, right. I just you, you'll need you need somebody here to take all the bad comments from you. So I'm here to help you out, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> all righty, dude. Well, thanks for coming, hanging out. Everybody else, let's go ahead and jump into the weekly poll. The weekly poll. So this week, the Merc with a Mouth Deadpool, he entered into the, the latest Spider-Man crossover, an absolute carnage versus Deadpool number one. Deadpool has gone that extra mile for his buddy and thrown Spidey a birthday party, but unfortunately, Peter keeps his secret identity on lockdown, and so it's not actually Peter's birthday, and the only acquaintances Deadpool knows are Spider-Man's bad guys, who will, of course, give chase to them and chase them around through the city. Although Rhino was thoughtful enough at least to be a, bring a present for Spidey. 
as they're invading the bad guys, Spider-Man makes the comment that, you know, at least he had the sense to not invite J. Jonah Jameson. Which is when we flash over to a scene of Jameson alone in a room decorated for a birthday party with a party hat on, grumbling about the no-good Spider-Man. Now, this is one of those times I mentioned last week where there's a little bit of a gap in what I know currently, and I'm not entirely sure if Jameson still knows that Peter is Spider-Man, or if that's something that's been undone over the last few months. But this little aside perfectly captures the classic relationship between the two. I'd assume since he's there, he still knows Peter's Spider-Man, but with Deadpool being involved, just about anything goes. So, I mean, it's, it's hard for me to be sure. This whole sequence is the final straw, and Peter draws a line in the sand where either Wade's going to get help from John Jameson and his team at Ravencroft, which, I mean, it's basically like a less dark Arkham Asylum. It's where the insane villains go, and... It has just as poor security as Arkham traditionally does, but generally it's it's much less Batman, if you get what I mean. Wade eventually goes, and in typical fashion, he's completely oblivious that Ravencroft has fallen and stumbles into Cassidy and his cold symbiote hosts, including John Jameson, who's gone full-on man-wolf with a symbiote on top of it. Deadpool leads them on a chase throughout the facility, you know, managing to evade them, but up until the point where he sets it on fire, and in a rage, Carnage is on the verge of killing Jameson when he realizes that Deadpool is a former host of four different symbiotes, which makes the codexes contained in him, they're basically like a jackpot towards their goal of freeing Noel, the symbiote god. Where we go from here, I'm not sure. I mean, historically speaking, Deadpool's tie-ins are more about his ridiculousness, and I mean, don't get me wrong, he's very much truly true to Deadpool throughout the issue, but his unique position as a host of so many different symbiotes means that this tie-in may have more weight to it than usual. For my indie stop this week, I picked up Xenoscope Entertainment's Van Helsing vs. Dracula's Daughter. It's written by Raven Gregory with Alan Otero on art, and while I don't have a whole lot of familiarity with their work, I have read a few of their other issues in the Grimm's Fairy Tale universe that Xenoscope's got going on here. The The main character in this is Lucille Van Helsing, and she served as the inspiration for Sci-Fi's Van Helsing show. And, I mean, she's a fairly cool character, and at first glance, I mean, you've got... She's the daughter of Abraham Van Helsing, and it basically, if you picture DC Zatanna, but playing at being Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you essentially have a fair sense of the vibe they're going for here. We open on a hooded figure draped in mist, effortlessly passing through the high insecurity that LaSalle's got in place. And as who we assume to be Dracula's daughter, I mean, it's never actually brought up in the issue itself, but it's fairly obvious. She reaches the body of Dracula, and the issue cuts to Van Helsing's tech friend, Mina, who finds that Drac's body's gone. Weeks go by, and they turn up no leads, and as Mina and Jonathan, who I'm not entirely sure what his role is here overall, they're at dinner while the cell's trying to squeeze a group of demons or vampires. It's, it's not entirely clear, but she's trying to squeeze them for the lead, trying to track down the body. Here she methodically takes down the henchman. I mean, she's making like Blade on his way to confront Deacon Frost in the original movie before she gets overwhelmed by the sheer power of the leader. As he takes a big old lick of his imminent meal, we cut to an earlier in the evening where this poor priest happens to stumble upon her bathing in the holy fountain. I mean, she clearly believes in the power of the church, but she could care less about the conventions. She ends up with no intel on Drac's body, but she does come across her mother's journal, which we don't learn much about here, but promises to have significance later on. Dracula's daughter captures Mina and Jonathan as we close out issue one. They laid out enough threads to have my interest for now. I mean, whether that stays, whether that holds throughout the entire six-issue run, I'm not entirely sure about, but at this point, I may do some background reading to better understand what they're doing here if I can get my hands on some stuff. I guess that in and of itself means I think you should at least give this book a look.
like so much these days, I'm behind on Year of the Villain. I mean, I have the broad strokes, but there's just so much to read, and there's just only so many hours, you know, in the day. For whatever reason, Black Mask Year of the Villain number one, it kind of leapt out at me this week. I mean, I think it's because when, when he's done properly, he can be a compelling villain, but this whole event, Lex Luthor's offer, it isn't the type of thing he's usually involved in. He's essentially a more thuggish kingpin. So, this, so I was kind of curious to see where the story went with him on this grander stage. We get a Cliff's Notes version of Roman's history. We see how his parents neglected and even abused him. If he might make them look bad or lessen their social status in any way, shape, or form. They desperately wanted to be in the social circles that the Waynes ran in. And here's where we, the seed of hate gets planted as Roman grew to hate the perfect, loved, golden child Bruce Wayne. Now it turns out all this backstory and exposition was Black Mass setting the stage for a hostage to these guys as the buildings then get surrounded. A Luther bot shows up and extracts Mass out there, and, and that's when Luther makes his offer. Over in Scott Snyder's Justice League run, Luther's been playing with the primal forces of the DCU, and now he has the power to offer aid, power, whatever, to those villains and heroes who accept his offer to join him. And Luther brings up the exact point I was just making about Black Mask. He he thinks too small. He's a petty crime lord. Why bribe a judge when he can manipulate world leaders and corporate movers and shakers? That's where the real power is. Roman gets the ability to alter his appearance, which is in addition to his mild sonic abilities that he already has, and he replaces the CEO of a pharmaceutical company. While he doesn't go about in the best manner, he leaves a trail that Renee Montoya and Batwoman followed, which leads to exposing him. So, I mean, he does get defeated, but he doesn't get captured, and we close on him attempting the same stunt again, this time in Australia, well outside of their territory. Irrespective of how you feel about Black Mask himself as a villain, this issue does exactly what you hope for from a tie-in issue. It's an entirely self-contained story that you won't miss out on something key to the overall event if this doesn't happen to be one of the millions of tie-ins that you don't happen don't have the funds to pick up. But it takes that foundation to introduce an intriguing new twist for future stories to build off on. And I have to say, I dig it. And now we once again find ourselves right back here. On the bright side, only seven more weeks of this and then I just might give the X-Men a break. But I just can't do that when Hickman keeps layering in cool stuff each and every week. At least the X-Men are back to having, you know, first world problems with too much good stuff after some of the lows they've had over the last few years. Here, Hickman bucks the trend and gives us our second straight installment of Powers of Ten with issue three. This one foregoes the four timeline format instead focusing entirely on year 100 of the X-Men. We get some clarification on the four horsemen here, and while Wolverine, Kroot, and Zorn are who we guess they were, the originals, the Magneto-looking fellow is actually a chimera like Rasputin and Cardinal named North, and he's he's a more stable second-generation version with the powers of Polaris and Emma Frost. The chimeras, if you remember, were the creations by Sinister that grew more and more unstable each successive generation that led to the fall of the mutants under Nimrod. Zorn, North, and the Chimera is a solid church where this hybrid priest is preaching that mankind must abandon our failings and ascend as part of the machine society. Of course they're noticed, but Nimrod is indifferent to what's going on there, realizing that there's another target at play. He does send forces that get obliterated, along with everything else as Zorn unmasks, unleashing the singularity contained within him, wiping everything out. 
Kroot manages to extract the information about when Nimrod came online, and Apocalypse goes down, at least we assume he goes down, holding back the Nimrod so Wolverine can get to Moira McTaggart, who absorbs the information before Wolverine kills her, ending her ninth life. So what this does here is it's twofold. First, it confirms that the four different eras that we've been seeing aren't necessarily from one timeline, but they're rather from here or there spread across Moira's ten lives. And second, this recontextualizes the rather extreme measures Xavier's adopted to get that information from damage control in the present time and the mission they sent Cyclops on last issue. I can't wait to see where House of X takes us in the next two weeks with issues three and four. I mean, this is clearly shaping up to be one of my all-time favorite X-Men runs, but there's still plenty of time for the wheels to fall off the whole thing. So, let's go ahead and get on to my favorite X-Men story in the Age of Apocalypse in this week's Comic Club. Comic Club. Last week's Batman Hush was, as I said, my gateway drug back into the hobby. The The Age of Apocalypse has a similar place to me. This is what prompted me to set up my first poll list with my local shop. With the news coming out of Wizard Magazine and the lead-in of Legion Quest, which we'll stop on here in a minute, this is the first time it became absolutely essential that I not miss anything. It took a lot of extra chores and doing things for my neighbors to fund my ambitions, but by God, I did it, and I didn't regret a single penny of it. I enjoy even the lesser books, because they help define this new world. This is without a doubt my favorite event series of all time, but we're going to be here for a while, so it's probably enough of me gushing about it, so let's go ahead and get into this. Had I not been set on getting issue 3 out last Monday, and therefore not been rushing so much, I would have added the 6th issue lead-in Legion Quest to this week's reading, but I think I can bring you up to speed pretty quickly. Charles Xavier's son, David Haller, Legion, he had managed to find harmony with the assorted personalities inside him and reached a clarity that brought with it the access to his full range of abilities. He believes that Magneto standing in the way is why his father has failed to achieve his dream and resolves to go back in time to take Magneto out of the equation. This is where we get a lot of the foundation for the friendship that Charles and Eric had that's played such a role in the movies. I mean, it wasn't invented here, but this is what I think of in that context. But that may be biased because of where this is all leading us. So, comics happen, and Legion is at war with not yet Magneto, while some time-displaced X-Men can't seem to stop him. And as Legion goes for the kill, Xavier intercepts the thrust, dying, erasing Legion from the timeline and wiping everything we know from existence. Except for Bishop, who I'm assuming due to his time-hopping shenanigans, survives but loses his memory. And now here we are, after Xavier and the Age of Apocalypse. From this point on, Marvel canceled every current X title, which at the point was probably about a third of everything they were published, and relaunched them all under new titles set in this new timeline. Everything was fair game, and I found every corner of it fascinating. Now, we're splitting this in half because I'm not sure where the line is of what I can reasonably expect you to try and read, but rather than hop around every issue as you did on Marvel Unlimited, I'm going to cover both issues of a title at a time, and while X-Men Alpha was where the arc actually started, chronologically speaking, X-Men Chronicles is the true start of the story, so we're going to start off there. X-Men Chronicles takes us to the early days of the X-Men, when they're in their hideaway in the Wonder Gore Mountains as Weapon X and Rogue join the team. From here, they play off the very first issue of the X-Men, where instead of Magneto, it's Apocalypse attacking Cape Citadel. And as they fight Apocalypse to a standstill, his son Nemesis attacks Wonder Gore, killing the Scarlet Witch in the process. 
Issue 2 spends most of its time focusing on the shifting of the dynamic between Rogue, Gambit, and Magneto, which is fairly pivotal with everything going forward. But here we do find out about Jean having been left behind in the slave pens, only to be saved by Logan, who refused to follow Magneto's orders, which leads to them splintering off onto their own, which we'll get to back here in their series here in a minute. Now, I find it interesting that the bad guy of this issue is this reality's Wolverine. It's not necessarily the fact that he comes in there and you know, starts wrecking shop. It's, it's more the fact that I can't see, I don't believe he has a counterpart in the 616 universe, and that, that was fairly rare with everything that they brought in. These two books bring us up to speed on some of the key points that brought the X-Men to where they are today. Now, X-Men Alpha, as I said, is where is really the point from which everything spins off from. It ties into everything going forward and doing a nice job of setting the stage for what ends up being a fairly large story. We open with Bishop climbing a literal mountain of human corpses that were left behind from Apocalypse's calling in Seattle. His forces basically move in and exterminate every flat scan that they can find. This leads to an encounter with Unus the Untouchable and a squad of infinites, which are, think, genetically engineered soldiers. And as things escalate, Magneto and his X-Men arrive. I'm assuming if you're listening to this, you know Storm, Banshee, and the rest of the big-name X-Men, but I thought I'd kind of fill you in a bit on the lesser-known ones. Now, Sabretooth's mini-me is Wild Child, who's popped up in... Canada's Alpha Flight and X Factor. I mean, he's like a Wolverine or Sabretooth Light, but here he's much more primitive than he generally is. Now, Morph is the walking Looney Tunes character, and he was actually from the very early days of the X-Men. He was actually assisted a bad guy, I believe it was Lucifer, and he had a ridiculous purple-headed costume, and he wasn't around for all that long, but he went by the name of Changeling. Now, the third one here is Blink, and if anything, she was kind of the breakout star from the Age of Apocalypse. She actually was in the 616 universe, but she didn't survive the Phalanx Covenant arc, which is where they introduced Generation X. Bishop and Magneto recognize each other, and the shock of which snaps Bishop out of the, his near catatonic state that he's been in for the last several years since Charles' death. As they regroup, we bounce around, checking in on some of the major players of the world. At the time, seeing stand-up Scott Summers and his brother and Beast at the Mad Scientist working for Sinister as part of the regime was more shocking than seeing, even seeing him live up to his name with Cyclops down to one eye. And it's really weird seeing Sinister playing the role of father to Scott. I mean, it makes sense given his fascination with his genetic code, but it's always been such an adversarial relationship. Angel has made a nice place for himself with his elite club Heaven, where he walks the line trying to play both sides. Gambit comes in calling in the favor to help in trying to reach Magneto. Logan and Jean, meanwhile, are struggling to reach the Human High Council with information that Apocalypse is planning on escalating the war, leaked to them by Sinister. This is all part of his plan. Sinister's playing games in the shadows, trying to advance his own personal cause. Returning to the mansion in Westchester, we see that the true conflict lies for Magneto. In a quiet moment with his wife and his son Charles, after they linked minds with Bishop, he realizes that the world could be better. His best friend, the guiding inspiration for everything he's done since the day that Charles has died, should be alive. Millions would be uncalled, but it would mean sacrificing the son that he loves. He doesn't exist in the true world, and that's a lot to ask of a father. But left with no choice, he sets plans into motion to verify Bishop's claims, and if need be, to carry it out. This actually proves to be excellent timing, because since Jean never became the Phoenix, she never healed the Imkron crystal from when Deken tried to use it, as we talked about, you know, in issue 2's comic club, and it's getting close to ending existence.
Generation Next had an interesting position out of the titles. The core cast of Generation X had only been around for about 10 appearances at this point, so twisting them wasn't all that shocking. Instead, they added an extremely hard edge to Colossus and Shadow Cat as they mercilessly slice through their trainees during a Danger Room exercise that quickly gets out of control. Things actually continue to escalate up until Magneto himself puts in an appearance. I mean, his mere presence stops everything. Peter and Kitty are against his plan to follow a madman's advice and try to change time until he shows that Ileana Rasputin, Colossus' sister, is still alive, trapped in the hell that is the Portland core. Take along lines of the most brutal slave camp you can imagine, and you're in the you're in the neighborhood. Ileana's there barely scraping out an existence, living in constant fear of the sugar man, who's this misshapen, vile mutant that I've never particularly liked. But he can terrify a little girl. After she narrowly avoids him, you glimpse how defeated she is. She didn't want to die, but that just means she has to live another day like this. As issue two comes to an end, all generation nexus managed to infiltrate the core basically with no problems. But spoiler alert. Things are about to change drastically. Over in Astonishing X-Men, Magneto is bringing the X-Men up to speed on his plans when Blink and Sunfire come tearing in through one of her portals with an infinite hot on their heels. Blink can easily handle this, closing the gate, cutting him in half, but Apocalypse's tracker, Rex, has begun to trace trying to find the location of the X-Men. Holocaust is leading the Coins, which has, have begun again in earnest, despite the supposed treaty in place, so the X-Men split into one team to try to stop the Coins, while another one is attempting to aid in the evacuations of the humans before the Council bombs America. Once they arrive at the Coins, Shiro, Sunfire, freaks out. He relives the horrors of when Japan was called, and Apocalypse basically waterboarded him repeatedly in pools of blood. He's so traumatized, I mean, understandably so, but Rogue has to drain him to shut him down. We briefly flash back to Westchester where Bishop chides Magneto for worrying about his people, which then Eric questions how he can say that while Charles' son lies sleeping in his arms. Meanwhile, we see that Rex has completed the trace on their location, and we see Apocalypse smile, which, I mean, honestly, it's kind of chilling. I haven't seen it before, and I don't think I've seen it since. It's not something he does a lot. Blink ends up helping Creed get to Holocaust, who he tricks into revealing the location of the processing plant used to break down the corpses from the coaling. Here we see Wildchild isn't as simple as we've been led to believe as he escapes to carry the location to the team and Sabretooth goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with Holocaust and I mean honestly he does pretty well even ripping the head off his life support unit but in the end Holocaust is just too much and he turns to go deal with the other X-Men. Now we check in with Gambit and the Externals, which spins out of X-Force, despite only featuring two members of the team in, this, in the book. But that's okay. Instead, we get Gambit going full-blown Robin Hood with his merry band of thieves, Jubilee, Sunspot, Strong Guy, and Lila Cheney, living their life while being hounded by Julio Esteban Richter, who is clearly a devotee of Apocalypse in this timeline. Magneto sets them to steal the Mkron Crystal from the Shi'ar space, which there's a lot of connections here between our Issue 2 recap of the Phoenix Saga, including Dr. Peter Corbeau, who instead Instead of being out there stuck in space waiting for Gene to save, is working for Apocalypse while leaking information to Magneto. As Richter busts in with a host of Madri with him, Lila smashes through her mental block and warps the externals along with the tag along Richter into Shi'ar space where they're immediately confronted by the Imperial Guard who have them hopelessly outmatched. They narrowly evade capture when Jonathan, a hybrid Shi'ar Mephistoid who fills them in on how the Emkron Crystal is getting closer to wiping out reality as, it, as its reach continues to to grow. Gambit finally realizes that this is the game where he's playing for the highest stakes they could ever play for, and he resolves that this is something they have to see through the end. 
Weapon X gives us Logan and Jean finally together as a couple after all the teases over the years. And of course, I mean, the X-Men films made a major part of that. The duo go on a mission for the Human High Council, attacking the control center of the Great Wall Apocalypse has as his first line of defense. Aside from a run-in with Havoc, things go more or less as planned, and with, an, with a weakness exposed, the Council decides that the time is right to fight back in a last-ditch effort and bomb Apocalypse's America. This ends up being the line that divides our two characters. I mean, Gene just can't condone this mass loss of life that's coming. And after Logan saves the fleet in a battle with Donald Pierce, he makes one last try to dissuade Gene from risking herself, but that's a bridge she just can't bring herself to cross. And he gets left behind and she's on her way back. From there, we hop over to X-Factor, where we get a look at some longtime heroes and how the death of Xavier's dramatically impacted them. Scott and Alex Summers, without Charles' guiding hand, have been raised by Sinister, giving him unimpeded access to the genetic material that he's so long been fascinated with. These are the two top members of the Elite, who monitors the slave pens that the, whose residents are using the twisted genetic experiments by Sinister and a drastically darker beast, Hank McCoy. As we see the elite quell an escape attempt, we start to peel back the layers and see their corner of the world. We get the very first appearance of the Bedlam Brothers, who would later be folded into the 616, and we see the anger and jealousy and resentment seething in Alex towards Scott. Clearly, it's Scott's fault that he's overlooked, and he should be in charge, despite being the one having an affair with a human, which is definitely against policy, especially when she's a spy. But here we see that there's some gaps in security as a cloak figure, described to be Magneto, has been liberating prisoners from the pens. Havoc beats the witness, Lorna Dane, who has who has a long-standing relationship with Alex in the regular timeline. I mean, it literally dates back to the earliest days of the X-Men. But he proceeds to beat her for information. When she lashes back, he decides he's going to give her to the beast for his experiments up until Scott steps in and returns her back to the pens. Later that night, the figure aids in her escape, taking down members of Elite on the way out. And as he hoods we see that it's Cyclops and he hasn't fallen quiet as far as we've been led to believe but unfortunately Alex has watched the entire thing. In Excalibur we get a Nightcrawler who's gone full-blown swashbuckler which proved popular enough that that it influenced him in the mainline X-Books in the future. Magneto has put him on the task to contact his mother Mystique and through her convinced Destiny that future scene mutant I touched briefly on in the weekly poll to use her powers to confirm Bishop's memories. What makes this difficult is that Destiny has created a sanctuary in the Savage Land called Avalon where her and her followers have renounced the world and its warring ways. Needing help, Kurt goes to see the man who always has an angle, Orin Worthington the Angel. And he puts him in touch with the Underground, which is led by John Proudstar, who in the main line is Thunderbird. He was actually the first X-Man to actually officially die. It happened shortly after the new team was formed in Giant Size X-Men number one. They end up loading Kurt and some other travelers into submarines as Apocalypse forces send a mask, an evil Danielle Moonstar from the New Mutants, and Deadman Wade, who's an even more broken and scarred Deadpool to bring everything crashing down. An emergency surfacing causes the sub to be detected by both the mask and Callisto, who you might be familiar with as the one-eyed leader of the sewer-dwelling Morlocks in the 616. Callisto takes control of the ships and proceeds to flood the Holtz, killing all the passengers, which Kurt leaves Kurt only one response. So he begins eliminating the crew one by one until coming to a standoff with Callisto as Mystique finally comes swooping in to save her son. The other team of X-Men are over in the Amazing X-Men, and it shows them helping with the human evacuation in Maine, which we learn early on as being washed by the Madri who, I promise, I know they keep coming up, we will eventually get to them, but the story will get us there in time. 
The X-Men are training for the first part of their plan to aid the humans, which, without reprogramming, the Sentinels there will target them regardless of their intentions. And they can't they just can't seem to quite get the timing down. But out of time, they go to assist, and Storm shorts out the sentry towers, allowing the Sentinels to enter in unscathed. And as this is happening, we see a young boy is caught for bait by the Horseman Abyss. The X-Men manage to reprogram the Sentinels, but the Brotherhood of Chaos have altered it, and now the X-Men have to fight on two fronts, with only half of the team there. They eventually fend off the Brotherhood and undo the damage to the Sentinels, reprogramming them correctly, but Quicksilver is forced to go confront Abyss, who has been terrorizing that poor kid. Enraged, Quicksilver turns Abyss in on himself, getting pulled into the in infinite void that he contains, apparently ending the threat. As issue 2 ends, though, we see an Apocalypse's stronghold where they threaten to unleash the Shadow King from FX's Legion. Uh, they, they threaten to unleash him on Karma's mind if she doesn't give up the security measures on the X-Mansion, as Apocalypse prepares to go storm it himself. Which brings us finally to the X-Man. This occupies probably the most unique spot of all of the titles because it doesn't end after four months. We'll get to why next week in part two, but not only does his story not end here, he was the driving force behind the Age of X-Men that led directly to Hickman's current reboot that I can't seem to stop talking about. Nate Gray is the product of Sinister's access to Cyclops' genetic code and Jean Grey's, which he got before Logan freed her from the pens. The result is an early 20s cable unhindered by the techno-organic virus that he's constantly battling, and therefore his powers are literally off the charts. As Nate starts exploring his powers, we see that Cyclops, his, you know, his kind of father, attempted to free him from the slave pens before Nate side shifts to Westchester, peeking in on Magneto. He's been adopted more or less by Forge, who runs hit-and-run guerrilla strikes on Apocalypse under the cover of a traveling sideshow troop, which honestly is primarily made up of villains in our current timeline. Forge urges caution, but unfortunately it's too late as Nate's plane is alerted the Shadow King and Apocalypse sends Domino to go collecting. After a raid where Nate saves Teresa Rourke, which is Banshee's daughter Siren in the 616, they get joined by the mysterious Essex, who will prove to be important as we go on here. As Forge is trying to restrain Nate and teach him not to rely solely on his power, Essex is playing the devil on his shoulder, urging him to reach further, leading to a raid where Nate lets loose causing a lot of destruction but drains himself unconscious in the process. Forge goes to confront Essex shortly after we see Essex dispatch Brute, but before the confrontation can go anywhere, they get interrupted by Apocalypse's team of Domino, Caliban, and Grizzly. Wow. That went quite a bit longer than normal, but I, I, I couldn't think of a better way to touch on such a huge number of divergent threads. I mean, I know that was a lot to take in, but I promise, we're halfway there, and all the various branches are going to tie him back in here before we're done, and one of the most satisfying conclusions to a saga, I mean, at least for me personally. So, pick up right where we left off, just after X-Man number two, and finish the reading list in Marvel Unlimited. Uh, if you kind of want to see the after effects... Take a look at X-Men Prime, which takes the mutants off towards Onslaught, which, I mean, honestly, it brings up, that that saga brings up a lot of conflicting emotions in me. I honestly don't know to this day how I feel about it overall. I'm not sure we'll ever actually get to that one, but, I mean, it's a possibility. I hope I didn't run on too long and bore you too much, but this is what I live for. That said, this is the ideal time to reach out to me in, in any of the ways we talked about at the top of the show. I need to know, was this too much to throw at you in a week? Could I do more? I need some guidance on what you're looking for out of this, but I mean, there are plenty of stories of all sizes that we can pick from. 
I just want to make sure that you guys can come along with me too. I think that's going to do it for this week. Thank you, Marcus, for hanging out with me. You guys should go check out some of his Nerd Buzz stuff over on YouTube or on your podcast service of choice. He dabbles in some comics, but he goes he goes on a much wider range than what I do here. And I mean, if he starts getting hit on his old stuff, he might start it up again. And then I can join endlessly on about other stuff too. Thank you guys for giving me a listen. And remember, with great knowledge comes great responsibility. I'll see you next week.